Uh, this, by the way, is why I think at the national level, space systems need a sector risk management approach that is not yet, you know, I think may emerge, but has not emerged fully yet. So we play whack-a-mole with these problems. And the problem with whack-a-mole is by the time you see the mole, he's eaten under your house. So, you know, you, 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 you've, we simply can't afford to keep doing it this way. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, and welcome back, Downlink listeners. This is the third episode in a four-part series on cybersecurity and space systems, and we're doing this to mark two years since Russia launched its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine with a cyber attack on a U.S. satellite communications company, Viasat. You can hear about what happened that day, February 24th, 2022, from inside Viasat in the first episode. The second episode covers some of the more pressing cybersecurity vulnerabilities in our space systems that could even allow an attacker to take over a satellite for ransom. In this, the third episode, we're going to first look at the policy and then an effort to create internationally accepted standards for all commercial entities in the defense space industrial-based supply chain. The idea is to develop their space products to be cybersecure by design. And finally, why is it so difficult to secure legacy space systems? And we're going to do this with Sam Visner. Greg Falco, and Ang Sui. But before we get to this conversation, I want to acknowledge this week's news, and that's the revelation that Russia is developing an anti-satellite weapons system that uses nuclear energy. And it's not all that clear if that means for propulsion or to blow stuff up in low Earth orbit, which would create an orbiting debris field so no one can use space or perhaps it's something in between. Whatever it is, it's serious enough that the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has reportedly raised this issue with his Chinese and Indian counterparts at the Munich Security Conference. In the next and final episode of this Cybersecurity and Space Systems series, but I'd like to offer you this thought which comes from discussions I had with some space and national security leaders this week. And that is, developing a space-based nuclear weapon is expensive. Deploying it, which will require a very visible rocket launch, will have an even greater cost beyond rubles. If such a weapon denies space to all, this could deeply upset the few friends Russia depends on for cash and the arms and technologies it needs to prosecute its war in Ukraine, such as major spacefaring nations, China and India, and its partners who aspire to be so, such as Iran and North Korea. A cyber attack, however, is cheaper, can be more targeted. And once an attack is discovered, the nation or the organization on the receiving end may not be able to identify the attacker quickly. And without knowing who's responsible in a timely manner, a response, diplomatic or otherwise, it's delayed, perhaps indefinitely. So here's our conversation with Sam, Greg, and Ong. Hello, Sam, Greg, and Ong. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Delighted to see you, Laura. Thanks for having us. For this episode, we're exploring cybersecurity, space systems, and the policy. The three of you represent different but very important components of the needed policy to secure our space systems for national security, international stability, and domestic prosperity. So let's do a brief round of introductions before we attempt to wrap our arms around this. And Sam, you should kick us off. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. And again, it's it's an honor to be here with uh, with Ong and, and, and my, my good friend, Greg Falco. Um, I'm Sam Visner. I'm a technical fellow at the Aerospace Corporation, which is a federally funded research and development center focused on our country's space enterprise. I spend a, a lot of my time, however, as chair of the board of directors of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center, which is the nation's premier information sharing and sector risk management center for our uh, for the security and resilience of our space system. I've run a couple of cybersecurity businesses, and I've served as chief of signals intelligence programs at the National Security Agency. So I've clearly been around this business for a good long time. Thank you. And Greg, you're up. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Laura. And as Sam said, good to be speaking with phenomenal colleagues I have here, Arm and Sam. Um, so I'm a professor at Cornell University. My work is in aerospace security and autonomy. I run the Aerospace Adversary Lab, but today I'm also going to be talking to you guys a little bit about work that we do as I am the chair of the IEEE International Technical Standard for Space Cybersecurity. Um, so looking forward to talking to you all about that, and uh, thanks again for having us. And Ang, what about you? Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Laura, for having me. My name is Ang Tsui, and it's really great to be here. Um, I am um, a embedded security researcher, and I'm also the founder and chief scientist of a company called Red Balloon Security, where um, essentially all we do is we focus on embedded things and securing them and pushing the boundaries of automating that security and getting that security into the firmware of as many of the things that we depend on as possible. And again, thank you all for joining me. So it's been two years since hundreds of thousands of Russian troops invaded Ukraine, two years since a two-pronged cyber attack was launched against Viasat Communications Internet Network, KASAT. And let me just note here that it was the U.S. government that attributed this attack to the Russian military, not an independent hacker group. And we cannot forget that Viasat is a U.S. company headquartered in Carlsbad, California. This attack's effects were felt throughout Eastern Europe and as far away as Morocco. It affected critical infrastructures and alarmed enough people in Europe that reporters questioned the NATO Secretary General on whether a cyber attack could trigger the collective defense clause of the Washington Treaty, which is commonly known as an attack on one is an attack on all, or Article 5. So, Sam, cyber attacks can get pretty serious quite quickly. Take a moment and paint us a picture of that. Sure, thanks. And and Laura, it's a it's a darn good question. Not only can cyber attacks get very serious very quickly, but let's be clear about what's really at stake. In today's hyper-connected, cyber-connected world, cyber attacks are one of the weapons of choice. And they're weapons of choice for lots of reasons. Attribution can be difficult. They can be stealthy. The damage might be done before you real, you're in a position to, to mitigate it. Greg Falco's very, very good piece on ransomware against space systems is illustrative of that point. 
and also many of the kinetic weapon systems on which we depend uh, depend themselves on cyber systems and vice versa. So if one can master the cyberspace and electromagnetic environment, one might have significant advantages on, on, on the battlefield. Now, the Russians know this, and it should be it should be made obvious to everybody that in their attack on Ukraine, in the war that they instigated on Ukraine, before Russian troops crossed the border, before Russian troops crossed the border, the first thing they did was go after a commercial satellite system. They went after Viasat, and they went after the, the constellation that KSAT manages. That was the first thing they did. And they did so because they wanted to cause disruption in Ukraine. They wanted to make the Ukrainian government less able to function. And they've been working on this for a long time, uh, even before, I think, 2014, trying to corrode the ability of the Ukrainian government to govern, to be sovereign, to be respected, to have affiliation and loyalty from its, from its people. Uh, not very successfully, but they've, they've tried pretty darn hard. So there are a lot of upside to an attack in cyberspace. And since more and more cyber systems depend on space systems, this is, uh, this is a problem. Uh, I worked on a paper a couple of years ago with a buddy of mine, Peter Scharfman, really a mentor. And we said that while norms for attacks against space systems were more or less holding, more or less, that norms for cyber systems had not really held at all. And that as space and cyber systems become conjoined, norms for the attacks on space systems were likely to erode. We wrote this before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And now, you know, we can see that, that our adversaries understand the criticality of our space systems. That's why they're building the capacity to attack them. And they understand the, the criticality of their own systems, which is why they're building up their own capability. So if you, you know, any critical infrastructure is, you know, depends on space systems and therefore the security of these systems is, is vital. One last point, space systems are a growing, growing component of the national economy. If our space systems are under threat, so is a measurable component of our national economic security and our national economy. And that's something that we simply should not, uh, should not accept. So work in this field is absolutely vital. Thank you. Now, Sam, this Viasat attack, it affected a number of foreign national critical infrastructures. But in the United States, space systems, the infrastructure that, as you said, you know, underlies other critical infrastructures, and more specifically, the other 16 federally designated critical infrastructure sectors, <laughs> infrastructure sectors managed by the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, Space is still not designated critical infrastructure. Why is this designation important, and what is the holdup? Well, it's a it's a it's a hard question. First, there is a a confusion. People talk about space like they talked about land, sea, and air. They say, well, land or sea or air are not critical infrastructure. Why should space? But we're not talking about space, the domain. We're talking about space systems, the infrastructure. And that infrastructure is unique, but the uniqueness of the infrastructure is often lost in the confusion about this discussion of space as a sector. That's one issue. The second issue is that, you know, it is true that other sectors have taken some responsibility or at least been asked to take responsibility for components of space. So one could argue that communications or launch or other, other aspects of the space infrastructure are covered elsewhere. What's lacking is evidence that the other sectors really have, have a plan 
to to manage the risk for the space systems on which their own sectors depend. The other fallacy, of course, is that since comms depends on energy, maybe we don't need a comms sector. Maybe we should just give that to energy. So that's another issue that that there's confusion about, you know, overlapping and, and underlapping responsibilities. Lastly, I think is concern that the designation of space systems means that they become more regulated and regulation will impose costs and, and, and either decrease economic performance or decrease competitiveness of our, of our space industry. I don't think that's true. I don't think that there's evidence that that's true. But certainly there is some concern that, that people have that calling something critical infrastructure means it's going to be regulated and cost will be imposed. I would note the Presidential Policy Directive 21 that identifies the current 16 critical infrastructures, let's say 16 and a half with, with election systems being covered under government facilities, um, is not a regulatory document and no regulation has been written that I'm aware of that is a result of Presidential Policy Directive 21. So as I'm, I'm hoping as, a, you know, if a rewrite of 21 takes place, that this confusion will be alleviated and that people will understand the criticality of space, of, of space systems. Laura, whether or not the designation is made, you know, people like those of us on this, on this, in this interview and certainly at the Space ISAC are going to push ahead. We need space systems to be protected. We need them to be, we need the space system sector, whether or not it's considered a critical infrastructure sector under one government directive or another. We need that sector risk management to take place. So we're going to push ahead and continue to do the very best we can and to encourage the government to do the one thing it has not yet done, and that is to coordinate everything internally for their part. At the risk of flogging a dying horse here, the push to get space systems designated critical national infrastructure it's faced headwinds, and very specifically from the Aerospace Industries Association, right? Eric Fanning, he's the AIA president and CEO. He wrote a letter to Jake Sullivan, who is the national security advisor to the president. And in this, Fanning expressed his organization's animus uh, and to everyone who's listening and animus towards you know, designating space systems critical in infrastructure. But the thing is, I actually reached out to AIA and I reached out twice about this letter and to invite a representative to join this discussion today. And up to today, there has been no response, not even a gentle no thank you. So, Sam, you've read this letter. Where does AIA get it wrong? Eric Fanning and his team are stalwart defenders of national security. So their their motivation here is 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 certainly not to be questioned, and you know I w I'm not privy to whatever internal discussions took place that that generated the letter. So I I don't uh, I can't speak you know to whatever misapprehensions they they or may may or may not have. And AIA members are large and important and 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 extremely vital parts of our national security and defense industrial base. And in fact, they're members we, of the Space ISAC as well, many sure, of them, sure. right? So, so you know, for, for me, I think the, the, the confusion exists in a lack of clarity on the part of some of our government partners about what critical infrastructure designation means and what it doesn't mean. It means that the government undertakes a stronger role in coordinating information, in collaborating with industry. 
in helping industry understand best practices and find what might be the right best standards to adopt. It doesn't, however, mean that industry becomes somehow more regulated. Those sectors under Presidential Policy Directive 21 that are critical infrastructure sectors, many of them are regulated, but not because they're critical infrastructure sectors per se, but because we do regulate comms and energy. Energy is a, is a public utility, uh, and we regulate it. We have the FCC, which regulates comms, and that has very little to do with critical infrastructure protection. So I, I think it probably the difficulty that we're facing is that the fulsome conversation that needs to be held between the government and the private sector um, is still not as as well articulated as it might be, and this can give rise to the kinds of of misunderstandings that we've uh, that we've seen. My hope is that as government continues to to mull this issue and talk to the private sector, they can come round to 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 a designation decision. And even if they don't make a designation decision, if that word design, critical infrastructure designation becomes somehow confused with regulatory cost, to say, well, we won't call it a, a, a critical infrastructure sector to be regulated, but we're still going to have a space system sector, uh, uh, sector risk management approach. Uh, that would be a giant step forward, and perhaps it would alleviate concerns which I think are a little exaggerated, but alleviate concerns that this is a, a move towards a, a regulatory regime. And Greg, you have a separate but very important effort going on under the auspices of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers Standards Association, or IEEESA. And I, I'm not sure if I'm saying the acronym correctly, uh, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But Please take a moment and tell us about it, your your effort there, the group, you know, who's involved, when did you start, and most importantly, why did you start this group? Yeah, thanks, Laura. So uh, it's it's uh, the acronym is IEEE. That's how we, we like to pronounce it. Um, and the IEEE Standards Association is who we have to thank for standards for technology like Wi-Fi that was developed out of the IEEE Standards Association. Uh, we also have a lot of other critical uh, standards that we use for everyday technology that come out of this technical organization, IEEE. And uh, this effort that we have for the International Technical Standard on Space Cybersecurity, it was officially approved in February uh, 2023. So about it's about a year old as of, as of this week, actually. Uh, um, congratulations. Thank you. But we didn't actually get started on it because there's a lot of red tape uh, and bureaucracy in creating a standards association or, sta or not standards association, working with for a standard. Um, so we actually didn't get started and get all our ducks in a row until, until June 1st in 2023. And so since then, we've amassed a very, very robust working of almost uh, 200 people from around the world, over 20 countries are participating in developing technical standards for space cybersecurity. And we're taking an approach to create security standards from a secure by design approach. And what this means is today, when we have cybersecurity ideas for space systems, we usually follow what NIST's guidance is, which is like we have a lot of good controls that are out there. And NIST and, is, just for those who don't know? Sure. National Institute of Standards and Technology. Uh, NIST has their phenomenal frameworks on cybersecurity risk management, and it does a great job of describing a whole bunch of controls, retroactive fixes 
for a whole bunch of messes that we've developed because of all of the technical debt we have in society. And they've been increasingly trying to say we have to apply these controls to space systems. But what's ignored here is that we are in a new era for space systems. We have the new space sector, which is not the traditional Lockheed Martins and Boeings and defense industrial base, but we have this startup ecosystem, SpaceX, Blue Origin, these companies that have come out of nowhere in the past couple of years um, that are building exponentially more spacecraft than we've ever seen before. So why should we think about security from a standpoint of, well, after we build it crappy, we should try and institute these controls to fix it. We should design them correctly. We should design the space systems. And that means the ground segment, the link segment, the space vehicle, the integration components, and the user segment, which is kind of like the HMI, the user interface that people engage. We should build them right from the start when it comes to security. And so this working group is about developing design specifications for all of the facets, all of the components that exist in a space system so that it is secure from the start. So when we actually have to build new space systems, we can look at the standard that we're building and say, as a technical expert, as an engineer, you can look at what we're designing and say, I need something that's secure by design. I'm going to look at the standard and I'm going to build it to that spec. And that is a really powerful idea. Because as we build exponentially more space systems that don't have to have all of this technical debt that I described earlier that is in the sector, we can build things that don't have to have the security issues that our systems that we've had for 30, 40 plus years have had. And the reason why this is so critical, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this, it's so critical because we have an incredibly international supply chain for developing space systems. This is not an American game. It's never been an American game. Uh, exclusively. We have partners in countries around the world that we source parts from, components for these space systems. People think, oh, we have a space vehicle. It's made from one place. Nope, that's not how it works. You end up with little parts from all over the place, components from everywhere. And that's not even to mention the software that lives inside these components. And so we need to make sure that we have a common baseline of knowledge that is accepted internationally to be able to say, this is secure out of the box. And right now, the U.S. is doing what it can to try and create maybe requirements or interesting insights or principles for the DOD, for the National Security Space Community to say, this is what needs to be inside your box. But it's not being shared internationally. But if we're getting parts from all over the world, that doesn't really help us, right? So we need and do to the, have- and do those parts then I mean what you're just saying just to follow on and dig a little bit deeper because sure. this is you know part of the defense and aerospace report family if you know what has to be uh, used for DoD missions for defense missions has to meet these standards but if we're talking about supply chain and parts I mean are those parts then are we at risk then rather of, of parts that wouldn't meet a good standard? getting into something that the DOD would then use? Absolutely. Yeah. And we're increasingly, DOD is increasingly interested in using commercial off-the-shelf technology, things that we can just buy from places to get quicker delivery times uh, because we have an interest and a need for tactically responsive space where we can get to orbit quickly uh, from a mission design concept to actually getting into orbit. So if we don't have the ability to source parts from all over the place, that we actually kind of know what's inside the box, then we end up being a little screwed because 
It anything could be inside those. There's they can't point to anything saying this is how I designed this part. This is how I designed this component. So I'm just buying a black box, and that's not really how you secure things, and that's also not how you should an informed buyer should think about um, securing their ecosystem. So this is a very international effort that we have, where we're trying to get alignment from experts around the world, from many different countries, to buy in and also contribute their expertise to saying, this is what needs to be in the box. This is what the design specification needs to look like for this one component or this other component here, so that we can all align that there's some security that is minimum that should go into this stuff. And I have to assume that there'll be some recommendations on standards coming out soon, right? And if so, I mean, what would be the priority set of standards? Because you were just saying that you, you've got a number of working groups that are really drilling down into, you know, like the ground segment or, you know, the on-orbit thing. So what would be the the first, you know, set of priorities or set of standards, rather, that we should be looking out for? Yeah, it's a great question and something that we've been trying to grapple with a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of like cart and horse first thing, right? I mean, gosh. This is a, it's a a big challenge, right? So we have committed and we are going to stick by it to have a standard out by 2025. That is what our working group is aiming towards. And so in 2025, we will have this international standard for space cybersecurity. What's inside that standard is something that we only recently came to some kind of consensus on. And it is to establish what we call minimum requirements. And we are coming out with a paper that will be published in the next four to six months um, publicly. And we have some drafts that we can share with folks on this call or or anyone who actually reaches out as long as they're not publicly publishing it uh, that describes what is minimum. And we are developing this methodology for what is minimum because we can't do everything to start, but we do know some things are so important to have that otherwise you lose your access to space. And we can't lose access to space because of security issues. And and will these minimum standards include uh, minimums in, in the cyber domain as well? Yeah, so the the minimum standard for that we're talking about are, are minimum cyber standards, right? So we're talking about making sure we have minimum cyber secure by design stuff inside these spacecraft and the ground segment and the link segment and the user segment so that access to space is not denied. That's the minimum that we are setting a bar for. And so this is a really important undertaking. uh, And there's an amazing amount of consensus building uh, that has to happen as part of this. But that's what makes it so powerful is this is not a US effort. This is an international expert, panel expert uh, system. And, you know, can I add, I have maybe a question, but first the comment of, you know, what you just said, that phrase of uh, we can lose access to space. People say that as, uh, oh, you know, the internet could be down. But the first time I actually really thought about just how large of an impact that can be for like humanity, I don't know that I can exaggerate the fact that we can possibly lose like actual access to put another thing in orbit or use anything in orbit potentially for like a generation or more, right? Like the stakes of losing access to space is like, I don't know that I can express how high that is, right? Like if you think about it, all of humanity can be cut off if something goes wrong or somebody does something terrible. Yeah, and I think that it's important for us to create ultimately as a, as a, as a society or as a, a community of people who care about space, 
distinctions of, well, we can always put stuff in space, but losing access to that stuff is, is also a problem, right? So if you end up being able to deliver something to space, but you lose comms in perpetuity on that asset, then it's a brick. Uh, if you're not able to control it anymore or someone else takes control over it and hijacks your bird, you lost your access, right? So we have to figure about how to expand the notion of what is access to space. It's really about making sure we can use it, right? As the person who intended to use, the way they intended to use it. We don't want people to surreptitiously grab our access to space. And I know this this show this is not about Kessler, but I'll just toss it out there that, you know, there might be a thing where your, your bird turns into shrapnel and then we physically can no longer you know, constructively put stuff in orbit anymore, right? It's maybe debatable, but anyway, I just wanted to put that in there, possibly. I want to add a point here. I want to add a point if I could. And that is a modern developed industrial state that doesn't have access to, to space really becomes a minor power. Most countries today want access to space because they know their economy depends on it, their national security depends on it, their science and technology and research institutions depend on it. Their technological future depends on it. And the country, the, the, the world is being essentially dividing itself into haves or have-nots in the space sector. To some extent, this explains why even some authoritarian regimes are trying very hard to gain access to space. Yes, they get prestige, but they also don't want to be excluded from being essentially major players on the world's stage. So to the extent that we allow our systems to be vulnerable and we don't uh, undertake anything more than a bureaucratic fix, we don't undertake, you know, some of the, the, the steps that are being advocated by some of the experts on this call, and we don't undertake effective action and an architectural approach to securing our space systems, we're relegating ourselves to second or third rate status as a, as a world power, which we certainly can't do. We can't do it because our role is as, you know, in world commerce, our role in world communication, our role in world science and technology and international security would be would be undermined. So it's not an optional thing anymore. It's, as Greg said, it's a little bit like the Internet. You could say, well, you shut off the Internet. What does that mean? It means your country doesn't work anymore. That's what it means. And we're going to get to the point, if we haven't already, given the, the multiplicity of space systems that are out there. Tens of thousands of satellites, remote sensing, communications, GNSS, eventually now manufacturing, travel, mining, uh, colonization in space, that if we lose access to it, we lose our status as a world power. And, and I don't think anyone on this, on, this, on this interview, Laura, is okay with that. Man, I just, I had a thought that's very sad from what you just said. Today is Chinese New Year, so we're supposed to be happy. But I'm going to, this is important, so I'm going to ask the thought or say the thought of, um, let's say a first world power or like a first rate, you know, or superpower, whatever you want to call it. Let's say a major power who had access to space through some offensive action, you know, really loses all access to space, right, for a time being. Do you think, would it be like, do you think that that power would peacefully allow the rest of the world to enjoy space or would they deny access to everyone? Well, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Sam, I think that's definitely to you. Well, look, um, <laughs> what a downer, this, right? this, this is, this is a tricky question. Is this is a political um, answer. And it really depends. Is a real answer, Sam. <laughs> well, let me give you a real answer. Let me give you a real answer. Let me give you my real answer. I, you can decide if my yeah, me real too. answer is, is satisfactory. 
look, it depends on the country. You know, the United States with our allies, but the United States after the Second World War rebuilt the international system. We rebuilt the international system around an international financial system, Bretton Woods, the International Monetary Fund, et cetera. How did we use it? Well, you know, did we always use it perfectly? Did we always use it for universal good? I won't claim that. I will claim that we built an international order that was essentially peaceful, that allowed countries to compete, but to compete peacefully and to coexist. We avoided nuclear war. We developed confidence-building measures, you know, in terms of, of everything from control of currency to the control of and, and testing of, thermo, of thermonuclear weapons. So by and large, the wise statecraft of the world's liberal democracies did a very good job to create a global environment from which most countries benefited, including some of our adversaries. Ask yourself if that same kind of statecraft and if that same kind of commitment to a global set of norms is representative of the kind of behavior you're seeing from some of our adversaries today, like Russia and Russia and China. So, you know, I am saying that in essence, we are, you know, we in our access to space are more trustworthy in helping other countries use space for peaceful purposes than some other countries, which frankly have very little interest in a global in a in a global set of norms and global commonwealth so you know is so my answer is it depends on which country and frankly although no country is perfect our record is really quite good and some countries i would say their record is really quite awful that's my answer hmm. i buy it yeah so thank you great, but okay yeah i like that <laughs> <laughs> all right well, Ang, you're not off the hook either. Uh, as you know, and I really have to say a special thank you for joining us today because I know it was on really short notice, but it is actually your fault because on the last episode, you mentioned a pretty serious hurdle to securing space systems, one that I had never really heard of before, and it seems pretty serious. So I, I just have to bring it up here, and that is the right to secure now, it's pretty close to the idea of right to fix. I want you to take a moment and with a real world example, explain what the right to secure is, why it's important, and where is the disconnect between what's happening and where maybe there should be a policy answer. Yeah. Okay. So this is not unique to space, but it is pretty unique to uh embedded things so you know like a, a phone or i don't know like um a tv or some kind of a device that you buy all of these things run software but if you generally look in the um the agreement that they have right like the agreement says this you're buying the product you can't look inside the software you can't change the hardware all of the secrets are ours you get to use it but only the people who make like the vendor the manufacturer gets to change any of the software and if you attempt to change the software yourself if you're an individual, you lose tech support, you're breaking YOLA, like the agreement literally says you can't do this. Um, if you are a enterprise or a country or, you know, larger, and you go and do this today, you will still lose tech support, YOLA, but it affects your insurance policy, like liability of all kinds. So, you know, basically, long story short, you know, if you buy a device that runs software, the norm today across all of the you know, critical infrastructure verticals, be it power, or communications or aerospace, right? Uh, com, you know, transport is that you buy the thing, only the vendor has control of the hardware and the software. 
the firmware, right, that literally runs inside, and no one gets to secure or you know change the firmware unless the vendor does it, right? So that's uh, you know kind of reasonable for maybe like an iPhone or something. But but let's um you know I'm gonna br- like present maybe an extreme case, and then we're gonna break it down into maybe like more specific scenarios, right? So you know suppose like you you have a house, you rent the house, and you know there's a landmine in your backyard. You don't own it, right? Like the uh, you know you're the the owner of the building really doesn't care and you have to live there anyway. And at some point, you know, years and years go by and you look at the spec and you say, oh, the failure rate of this landmine is like really exponentially going up now. I live here, right? Who is going to fix this, <laughs> right? And the scenario here, you know, in the firmware security analog or analogy is literally by construction of like the agreements that are made you have to live inside that house. Like, well, if you want to live in the house, you live there, but literally no one is allowed, right? Or no one can allow you, the, the person who lives there, to take any action to fix the thing, right? So replace house and landmine with, you know, ground control system, right? So let's say, you know, we find, you know, so there are only a handful of, uh, you know, manufacturers of ground control systems. And, you know, I'm just going to leave the name out of it, the, the manufacturer's name. But the one thing that I will say is, you know, the first this is a ground control system. A ground system control, yeah. for 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 a satellite. For a satellite. Systems, okay. Yeah. Just to make for, sure. <laughs> exactly. Right. So I would say you know the company the f- company that first does their their like the first uh, vulnerability disclosure right is like a dozen steps ahead of literally every other manufacturer in the space right and if you uh you know go search and look at the number of CVEs that we have. So CVEs, you know, vulnerability descriptions, right, for things that are known vulnerabilities. Um, you know, for anything that's infrastructure and aerospace, you can count on literally one finger how many, you know, entities have been able to do that through the process that we use for every other, you know, type of computing on the planet, right? So let's say, you know, we, so doing this is already good, but the CVE in this case, you know, what happened was, um, you know, they said, okay, like this is a vulnerability. Here it is. It's a description, just like every other one. And um, it, the product's been end of life. Uh, no, we're not going to fix it. Okay. Right. Like that's a normal, reasonable thing for many people to say, like if you're talking about an iPhone or whatever, but now so if, if you it imagine, was like an iPhone 5, basically, yeah, whatever, I mean, just, buy to, a new one, just right? it, it, we'll buy a new one because it's an iPhone 5 and Apple isn't going to fix right. it. So, you know, but they'll take it, they'll recycle it. They won't even give you any money for it. But, you know, sure. but that's it. There's no yeah, support for it. it anymore. But and and you can't fix it either. Yeah. All right. So but let's say, you know, instead of like a person with an iPhone, you know, you are a person who runs a large piece of ground control infrastructure that uses not just one of these, but probably, you know, chances are if you go with one major manufacturer for, you know, this type of thing, you tend to like replicate that and you stick with that manufacturer. So if we're talking any, I don't know, like maybe five to 20% right of the world's ground control system is this, right? Every operator is going to look at that and say, okay, so here are the facts. This is a, I, I've been running this facility. It's been running fine for the last 10 years. Now the CVE comes out, the entire world now clearly, like, we've guaranteed the whole world that this vulnerability is definitely, definitely in every one of these ground control systems. And through all the rules and all the, the, the things like the vendor is not re- uh, putting out a patch. Um, and I am, I, the operator, am not allowed to repair or like change the firmware. So literally we're in a situation, well, who fixes the vulnerability, right? Like it's guaranteed to be there and the attackers know about it because, you know, the CV describes it. We need a mechanism effectively for marching rights, right? To say, 
you know, at the end of the day, somebody has to have the authority or ability to go in and fix the vulnerability in the firmware. Um, we need a way to do that. So and that doesn't it, actually exist today. So let me just wrap a, a bow on this. So what you're essentially saying is that if you're a space company owning or operating a space asset, and you know that that there's a gap in your cybersecurity, and you you have that knowledge plus the willingness and the means to patch it. You can't because the embedded yeah. hardware vendor uh, may not even be in control of of the software that's even running that embedded hardware, and that the vendor of the uh, software for that hardware they may not be uh, generating patches for it anymore because, you know, maybe this is something that's, you know, 20 plus years old and in geostationary orbit. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that could be one or maybe it's simpler. It's maybe it's too expensive. Maybe it takes too much time. Maybe the root of the vulnerability is not just this one line of code that's a bug, but the entire system, right, you know, to Greg's point, right, like wasn't built with any kind of security architecture in mind. Um and, but you still well, don't have a right to go in and fix it. Right, right. Because at the end of the day, you know, these are companies, they are privately owned and they, yeah, like operate for profit. So, you know, it is okay for them, right, to say. As long as there is a profit, but to, to create right. a fix for something and, that's, you know, 20 years old, there's just really not a profit line in there that yeah, they, they want to try and, you know, net. Exactly, right. And, um, you know, so. There's no, like, as long as there's no kind of penalty for not fixing the thing, they can make the decision that, okay, like, thought about, you know, what is the downside to this? Okay, like, all of our operators are at risk. Yeah, that's terrible, but are, how much market share are we going to lose? How much fee are we going to pay in penalties? How much is this going to, co- like, cost us if we don't act versus the cost of actually fixing the bug? And unfortunately, you know, in the real world, right, I've seen this over multiple decades you do have bugs that are way too expensive to fix and people just, just don't do it, right? And in something as important as, you know, the thing that's literally moving the uh, the antenna dish to so we can talk to the satellites, right? Um, there aren't, you know, we're not talking about a million of these in the world. So it's a very small group of uh, customers that you cultivate closely. You know, it's a very sticky business. So chances are eh, you're probably not going to lose much market share. But, and you're, you know, right now we have recommendations. We don't have requirements. We don't have penalties. You're not going to lose money, right? So what is the, yeah, what is the impetus or the rationale to spend lots of money re-engineering a thing that you sold 10 years ago from the perspective of the manufacturer? Which right, is fine. But, then but, if we, but if we look at what Greg has been studying and has put a, a paper out recently on, on ransomware, right? I mean, if you have a very important satellite that's been there for the past, what, 15 years, and still serves a, a serious purpose and still generates income and probably lots of income, you, you can you can take it over and you know hold it there for ransom, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and also and no one can fix it. And there's also an interesting market problem here that history repeats itself. So as as the academic, I'll 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 pretend to remind you long about long, long ago when Microsoft also might monopolized. Yeah how it did its security for PCs, right? And they didn't let any external vendors have operate any kind of security applications on their PCs back in the early 90s. Um, they just thought this was like an amazing market that they were going to tackle, right? And it was going to be their security market. And then they realized they couldn't handle it, right? And that's when you now you have all of the, you know, Nortons and McAfee's and whatever of the world. Not to say that it all works, but to say that it took Microsoft a long time to realize 
we should not hold back we, we, and allow others to come part of, be part of this ecosystem. So companies like Ans in this case right now are being a little bit blocked by these manufacturers to some extent because they kind of all, also see it as maybe not a huge financial incentive, but also they kind of want to hold on to the control of their systems. And so why would they let someone else show up and deal with that when they feel like they might be able to handle it themselves or they don't even want to care about it, as Ang has been saying. So I think, you know, here history, we have precedent for this. Hopefully, there'll be a tipping point where, you know, the Microsofts of the world of space decide to bail and let everyone access their ecosystem for security. So, gents, I mean, you know, what is the policy fix for this one, right? This, this to me seems pretty serious, honestly, because if you can't go in and fix your fix the software, I mean, e- even if, you know, support is no longer being given because it's not something that's going to make a profit for the initial vendor, I get that, but to continue to prevent the owner operator from being able to fix their asset, which they sunk a whole bunch of snaps into to develop, put together and launch and then maintain, right? Because not, it's, nothing's cheap in space. What's the policy fix to make it possible for, for these things to, 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 to be fixed? I, is, is this something that comes you know, from the space community? Is this something that the, the Department of Defense should demand? Uh, because an attack on a space system, as I've, as I've said before in this discussion, can have far-flung consequences, including instigating an Article 5 action. Right? I mean, am I crazy? I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's like a top-down problem and a bottom-up problem, right? So the, the part part of one of those problems is like the retroactive, you know, you have this broken thing, it's not secure, it's been around forever, how do we fix it? Then you also have the, hey, we're building all these new things, and should we just keep doing them the crappy way we've been doing it, or do we design it the right way to start so it's kind of the top down, bottom so, up. So here, little like here's a nuance, right? So it's not okay. So how how to fix it? It's a it's an economic question, also a technical question. So the reality is the technology to fix it has existed for for quite a while. I spent you know most of my PhD working on this, and lots of other researchers and and innovators out there have solutions. We can technically fix it. Then the question is okay, like well we're not allowed to. So practically speaking how to how how do we go about this right exactly so sam do you have any thoughts on this i mean you have been in the policy sausage making game for a number of years now and i won't say how many but for a number how, how do we tackle this because this is clearly a, a vulnerability well there are several ways of going about this the first is to to note that there's not going to be a lot of added, you know, a lot of appetite for attempting to do this uh, essentially by by mandate. That may come, and it may have to come at some point. But I don't, I don't see that as the starting point. First thing first, good software development lifecycle and good DevSecOps processes, I think, can be made uh, more available. I think people can do a better job of explaining what they are, how they work why they're of benefit. Um, I think that's the first thing. So that better security by design is absolutely important. The second thing I would say is that as long as security issues remain a threat within the supply chain, right? You think about what happened with SolarWinds, 
it's going to be important that people who consume software have the ability to test it, have the ability to do dynamic and static uh, vulnerability testing, have the ability to, to find vulnerabilities and either go back to the manufacturer and say, we found this, we need you to fix it, or we need you to tell us how to fix it. And, you know, maybe put that in some kind of an agreement or a service level agreement with a, with a software provider. But there are tools that will allow either the software provider to get this done if vulnerabilities are found or the, the customer to get it done, perhaps on the, on, the, on the provider's dime. I don't think we've explored all of the various business possibilities. At the same time, work that's underway at places like the National Institute for Standards and Technologies and other federal centers that can not only identify vulnerabilities, particularly in legacy systems, but do work to identify better ways to patch these vulnerabilities. Laura, it's not going to all get done at once. We have some embedded systems, IoT systems in the power grid pipelines that have been there for many years, that that have been serving network, that have been part, you know, connected to networks that were bespoke networks, not connected to the internet. Now they're, you know, eventually they got, you know, they they got IP, uh, you know, IP clients on them, so that they could be connected. Um, it's not going to be possible to fix all of this at once. One thing I would say, however, Laura, and this is is a little tangential to your question, but this being Washington and having been trained to thank somebody for their question and then go off and answer the question I wanted to ask, and then thank them for the question and ask them if we've answered the question, uh, which I'll do in due course, is that. The country is making a significant infrastructure investment right now. This is an opportunity to do things right. Every time I hear the term shovel ready, I want to, I want to close my eyes and cry. You know, that means, oh, well, I can, I can spend some money right now. Well, that's great, but let's spend it smartly. If we're going to be modernizing the power grid, if we're going to be modernizing our pipelines, if we're going to be modernizing any kind of our infrastructure, including our launch infrastructure, what should we do about the best processes that are developing secure software and the best processes for continuing to test that software and to mitigate it? And I think that mitigation is going to be a shared contract between those who produce it and those who and those who buy it. And I don't think we've explored all the various business model and contractual models that are available to us to do that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think the economics is obviously a major issue here because fixing things costs money and having downtime costs money and money is finite. Um, exactly right. You know, we haven't been able to explore many of the alternatives because simply like right now, everybody just kind of points to the Yola and says, well, you can't do it anyway. So end of discussion. Right. So, but I think in this, like, however, the, the economics work out, I think at least I'm a proponent, you know, for the right to repair the, you know, the spirit of it should be that, if somebody can fix a vulnerability, right? Like, and, you know, the vendor is not willing to do it for whatever reason, that person should have a course to apply that vulnerability, like apply that fix, right? And of course, like, oh, what if your patch breaks something? And like, what if blah, blah, blah. Like all of those things need to be worked out. But at least the spirit of it should be, if we can fix a thing, right? The manufacturer really shouldn't be able to unilaterally come in the way of someone fixing a bug or like a vulnerability. No, I, I, th I think that's right. I, I think I think Ang's got it. Ang's got it right. Um, but I don't think that this is going to get solved overnight, Laura. I really don't. I think the 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 issue is there's so much software out there, and so much of it is in the legacy world that this is going to have to be done. Uh, this is going to be have to be done incrementally. And I guess part of that means, 
and I, I know CFOs who are listening to this 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 broadcast will will put me on their dartboard front and center. We need to budget for this in the long term. This needs to be considered programmatically. I know that anybody wants to say, all right, what's this going to cost and what is it for one and done? There's no such thing as one and done unless you think you're going to create an entirely new infrastructure from scratch, which is a lovely idea and I would be I'd be delighted to to be able to do it, but that in fact is is not the case. My house here in Washington D.C. We just had the lead pipe uh, in, input to the replace to the house. That pipe is probably a hundred, you know, about a hundred years old, right? And they did it, and I'm pleased that they did it, and they they did it well, and they did it quickly, and they got it done. But the truth of the matter is that they had to approach this thing programmatically, and that's and that requires a programmed investment. And and for those who say, well, I don't want to make that investment, do understand the risk that you to to which you 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 leave your company. The inability to mitigate these risks can shut a company down. Look what happened to JBS Meats, and look what happened to Colonial Pipeline. So, you know, what I would say is is rather than try to avoid this, try to figure out within a, as a as as smart business people a way to get this done more, you know, to get this done intelligently, with the understanding that. Any risk has to be has to be dealt with and has to be managed. Uh, this, by the way, is why I think at the national level, space systems need a sector risk management approach that is not yet, you know, I think may emerge, but has not emerged fully yet. So we play whack-a-mole with these problems. And the problem with whack-a-mole is by the time you see the mole, he's eaten under your house. So, you know, you 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 we simply can't afford to keep doing it this way. Sam, Greg, Ong. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Laura. I hope this was everything you needed. That's it for this week. For your daily dose of award-winning defense coverage, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report with Vago Maradian. And for the Maritime Domain, listen to Cavus Ships with Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and get your Air Domain news and analysis from the Air Power Podcast with J.J. Gertler and Bogomaradian. I'm Laura Winter. Thank you for listening. <laughs>